When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. B.C. or A.D., we all need Christ. And that will be Alma's focal point for the next three chapters as he counsels this wayward son. Now, do you remember President Packer's oft-quoted statement that true doctrine understood will change behavior? In fact, teaching doctrine will change behavior faster and more effectively than talking about behavior? So I think chapter 39 was necessary. It definitely was. You need to know the gravity of your sin. Or perhaps you'll not know how much you need the Savior in your life. Perhaps you won't be motivated to repent, as you must. But chapter 39 is more behavioral. Here's the things you did wrong, and here's some of the things you could have done right. Powerful chapter, beautiful message, but definitely behavioral. And if President Packer is right, and I testify he is, then it's doctrine that will change. If true doctrine changes behavior in the good direction, perhaps there were some doctrines that Corianton didn't understand that led him in the opposite direction. So if you were talking with somebody that had committed these major sins, what doctrines would help them most? Well, that's what's fascinating about the next three chapters. In chapter 40, and then 41, and then 42, Alma chooses three doctrines that his son really needs to know. In fact, at the beginning of each chapter, in verse 1 of each of these next three, he mentions, this is something that's been worrying you, huh, son? This is some great discernment on the part of a very observant father. I'll bet you've been worried about this doctrine that either led you into sin or makes you think you can't come back out of it. So let's talk about it. So behavioral in 39 and then doctrinal in 40, 41, and 42. And what would those three key doctrines be? Chapter 40 is about the resurrection. He says in verse 1, I perceive that thy mind is worried concerning the resurrection of the dead. Chapter 41, the next doctrine, is about what Alma calls restoration. He doesn't mean by that the restoration of the gospel. He means by that the restoration of who we spent our lives becoming. That will be restored to us in the next life. We would call that judgment, basically, with the law of the harvest. We reap what we sow. We are what we've spent our life becoming. And he says in verse 1 of that, that I perceive that thy mind has been worried also concerning this thing. And then in chapter 42, his third doctrine and Corianton's third worry has to do with justice and mercy in judgment. I perceive there is somewhat more which doth worry your mind, which ye cannot understand, which is concerning the justice of God in the punishment of the sinner. Alma nails it here with these three doctrines. Son, to understand the gravity of your sin and to know and have hope in the promise of the atonement, you need to understand the resurrection. 
which guarantees a judgment where you will receive the consequences of the choices you made in life. This is what Amulek was teaching back in chapter 11, remember, to the people of Ammonihah, that there is a resurrection. Nobody teaches it better than Amulek there, except maybe Alma here. But what was the point of that? There's no escaping judgment day because we will all be alive and brought back into God's presence to be judged. You have to pay the piper. You'll be around when the bill comes due. And third, now that you know those are real, what is God's justice? Is it something to be feared? Is there any way around it? Will it really condemn me? These three areas are exactly what Corianton and the rest of us need to know. So, chapter 40. Your mind is worried about the resurrection. I'll teach you this with a lot of the same principles and doctrines that Amulek taught back in chapter 11. But let me clarify a few things because this has been on my mind for a long time too. He says that in verse 3. He says, I unfold unto you a mystery. Nevertheless, there are many mysteries which are kept that no one knoweth them save God himself. But I show unto you one thing which I have inquired diligently of God that I might know. And that is concerning the resurrection of the dead. This has been on my mind, son. He says the same thing in verse 9, halfway down, where he says, Now concerning the space of time, what becometh of the souls of men is the thing which I have inquired diligently of the Lord to know. And this is the thing of which I do know. So two times in this chapter, I've wanted to know about the resurrection. What happens between our death and our resurrection? How it works, the timing, what happens after death leading up to the resurrection? I have inquired diligently of the Lord to know. I think it's interesting that that would be on his mind. Think about everything that Alma's been through. He has presided over the church through the martyrdom of the believers in Ammonihah that he witnessed before his eyes, the massacre of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, the slaughter of the Nephites during the war with the Lamanites that took place once the anti-Nephi-Lehi's joined the Nephites. His ministry has been defined by death in so many instances. In that, he's so similar to Joseph F. Smith, president of the church during World War I, an unimagined time of death worldwide. He was the president of the church during the influenza epidemic in 1918. Think about that. Has death been on our minds a little bit more because of the pandemic that's going on in our day? President Smith had lost several of his own children. Death was a pressing reality to him. And by the end of that year, President Smith would have passed away himself. I think it's so fitting that it would be he who receives the vision of the redemption of the dead that's now canonized in Doctrine and Covenants 138. Alma 40 is the Book of Mormon's equivalent of that revelation. With a prophet in a similar circumstance, with death on the mind, inquiring diligently of God, please help me understand things. These are not abstract doctrines. These are pressing realities, and I want to understand for my sake and for the sake of my people. What are some of the things that he learned after all of that diligent inquiry? Here's a few. Verse 2. I say unto you that there is no resurrection. Or I would say, in other words, that this mortal does not put on immortality, this corruption does not put on incorruption, until after the coming of Christ. So like we saw at the end of 39, some truths are not time-dependent. We're just as important B.C. as they will be A.D. We've got to know these glad tidings. And the Lord has been teaching truth, ministering through angels, revealing the plan of redemption since Adam and Eve themselves. But the actual fact of the resurrection, that one will not begin 
until after the coming of Jesus Christ himself. You see, a lot of the questions that he has and that he, I think he assumes that Coriantin has has to do with this timing. And that, by the way, was something that Alma himself dealt with back in chapter 12, right after Amulek had taught resurrection in chapter 11. Alma takes the baton and teaches timing in chapter 12, that a space of time opened up between the reality of death, partaking of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and the reality of eternal life, resurrection, eating of the fruit of the tree of life, that time was prolonged, cherubim and the flaming sword were placed there to guarantee that this life would become a probationary slash preparatory state. That's all Alma chapter 12. If you haven't seen those videos, the one in chapter 12 is essential here. Alma 12 and Alma 40 through 42 really do go hand in hand. What he taught in Ammonihah to Nephites who were struggling with sins of their own is exactly what his own son needs as he's in similar circumstances. So don't think that this time, this gap that opens up, that's prolonged to give us time to prepare and repent, don't think that gets short-circuited like death and resurrection just happen really quick. As if punishment for our sins is one of those, oh, this is just going to hurt for a second. Well, if that's the case, then who cares? Live it up, right? No, at least it's going to have to wait until the coming of Christ before resurrection takes place at all. So first thing you need to know, son, about the resurrection, it's a not yet promise. You do have time to prepare and repent. Verse 4, next truth. There is a time appointed, see, there's time again, that all shall come forth from the dead. Now, when this time cometh, no one knows, but God knoweth the time which is appointed. So I can't give you that detail. I don't know exactly when it's going to happen for everybody, but I do know that it will happen for everybody. All shall come forth from the dead. There's no avoiding this. And like Amulek was trying to say to Zeezrom and others, the reason people want to avoid the resurrection is because they want to avoid judgment day. But because the resurrection is guaranteed for all, then judgment is assured for all as well. You've got to be prepared for it. Verse 5, another thing he's not quite sure about. I love this, by the way, that here's a prophet who's unsure about a specific doctrine. So what's he do about it? He inquires diligently to know. And he's given insight. He receives understanding. But he also recognizes the limits of that understanding. I still don't know everything. Line upon line, precept upon precept. Well, I got another line. But there are yet lines to come. I'm grateful for this additional precept that I've been missing. But I know there's still precepts I'm missing still. In this case, verse 5, whether there shall be one time or a second time or a third time that men shall come forth from the dead, I don't know. But, he says, it mattereth not, for God knoweth all these things, and it sufficeth me to know that this is the case, that there is a time appointed that all shall rise from the dead. So I don't know how many times it's going to happen. If God waits for a critical mass and then brings about their resurrection and then starts another group waiting, I don't know. But at the end of the day, he says, it doesn't matter to me. I just know that it happens. And that's what you need to know, son. But whenever it happens, and however frequently it happens, there's got to be some kind of time between the time we die, since that varies for everybody as well, and the time that we're resurrected, which seems to at least have the possibility of variance also. So in 6, there must needs be a space betwixt the time of death and the time of resurrection. Now here we get some of the best insight the Book of Mormon has to offer about the spirit world. We'll learn so much more about that in section 138 from Alma's modern-day counterpart, Joseph F. Smith. But I want to know what happens during that time. Verse 7, I would inquire what becometh of the souls of men from this time of death 
to the time appointed for the resurrection. And then he repeats his earlier question. Whether there's more than one time appointed for men to rise, it mattereth not, for all do not die at once, and this mattereth not. All is as one day with God. Time is only measured unto men. But since time does matter to us, what does that timetable look like in the spirit world? Verse 9, again, that's what he says. That's what I've inquired diligently of the Lord to know. I want to understand what fills that gap. That's what Alma 12 was all about. Verse 11, he'll start to answer it. Now, concerning the state of the soul between death and the resurrection, behold, it has been made known unto me by an angel, so trustworthy source, that the spirits of all men, no exceptions to this, as soon as they are departed from this mortal body, yea, the spirits of all men, whether they be good or evil, are taken home to that God who gave them life. This is how they overcome spiritual death as they're about to overcome physical death. Again, Alma 12 is the best place to see this. Samuel the Lamanite will teach the same thing in Helaman chapter 13. But the two deaths that Adam and Eve brought into the world, separation from God, spiritual death, and separation from body to spirit, physical death, because that's not our fault, it wouldn't be fair if we still had to deal with those things. We're not punished for Adam's transgression. So resurrection overcomes physical death universally, but judgment overcomes spiritual death universally. We are brought back into the presence of God. Adam and Eve, you're off the hook now. They're back with me. The attention then turns from them to us. Can you stay with me? Or will you suffer a second spiritual death? This one on your account. Again, that's Alma 12. That's Helaman 13. But they'll all come home. What will that look like? And this is where the news is so good. Such glad tidings to the righteous. Verse 12. Then shall it come to pass that the spirits of those who are righteous are received into a state of happiness, which is called paradise, a state of rest, a state of peace, where they shall rest from all their troubles and from all care and sorrow. That's what the spirit world looks like for the righteous. They still have to wait for the resurrection, but they'll know it's coming they didn't live perfect lives, but they repented and they know that through the atonement they will be redeemed. That's a profound reality. Because as President Smith teaches us in DNC 138, prison in a way describes the whole thing, the entire spirit world. Because spirits without their bodies, pre-resurrection, will look upon the long absence of their spirit from their bodies as being in bondage. That's why the scriptures usually refer to them as the chains of death or the bands of death. Not just the chains of hell or the bands of hell. Those apply to the wicked. But the chains of death, the bands of death, apply to us all. The difference is the people in paradise know that they're getting out of prison. They know that the bands and chains will drop off them through a glorious resurrection. So even as they look upon this long absence as a bondage of sorts, they still feel nothing but happiness, rest, peace, no troubles, no cares, no sorrows. God has wiped away every tear. However, for those who don't know that, verse 13, the spirits of the wicked, yea, who are evil, how they get to this point, they had no part nor portion of the spirit of the Lord. They chose evil works rather than good. Therefore, the spirit of the devil did enter into them and take possession of their house. That's what happens when you put a vacancy sign up. What will become of them in this space between death and the resurrection? These shall be cast out into outer darkness, 
There shall be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And this because of their own iniquity, being led captive by the will of the devil. Now we will learn clearly in section 76 of the Doctrine and Covenants that outer darkness, technically, officially, is reserved for the selectest few. The type that Alma was referring to back in chapter 39 about denying the Holy Ghost and knowing that they deny it. Whereas there are kingdoms of glory for everyone but them. Some the glory of the stars, some the glory of the moon, some the glory of the sun. We don't see that doctrine in the Book of Mormon. And I'm okay with that. Alma himself is admitting there are things I don't know and I'm inquiring diligently of the Lord to find out some details. He's given me some. Other things I still don't know. Degrees of glory was a line and precept that came to Joseph Smith in an incredible flood of light. I'm so grateful we live with that understanding. But again, there were even things that Joseph didn't understand in section 76. Things that he learned later in section 88 and later in 93. Or that his nephew, Joseph S. Smith, learned later in 1918. As President Nelson has said repeatedly of late, the restoration is ongoing. And that's an exciting thing. So on the one hand, people would say, well, they didn't understand the degrees of glory yet. And so no wonder the Book of Mormon comes across with more of a stark heaven-hell kind of dichotomy. But that's not entirely the case. Admittedly, they don't yet know about degrees of glory. But as we'll soon see, Alma is finding out this isn't final judgment. That that happens with resurrection. But there is a space that opens between death and the resurrection with some kind of preliminary judgment that precedes the final judgment. He's, he's really trying to wrap his brain around this. It's fascinating to watch this unfold in these chapters. So he's trying to make sense of the spirit world. It's not just die, judged, heaven and hell. That's the mentality for most of Christian history. But that's not Alma's understanding. Judgment and separation in a final way happen at that moment of resurrection. But since there's space between death and the resurrection, what happens during that space? That's what he's grappling with. And here we start to see the separation of paradise and prison, not the separation of celestial, terrestrial, telestial, and outer darkness. So I don't think verse 13 is trying to pass final judgment saying, these are going to outer darkness. Because frankly, that won't be the case. I think more accurately, if we're sticking to verse 13, is that this is the mentality of those in spirit prison. They have no hope. They haven't learned the truth, the truth that would make them free. And so what's their assumption? I've chosen evil works instead of good. The spirit of the devil entered into me. He's got possession of my house. So what am I doomed for, for the rest of eternity? Outer darkness. No wonder there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Oh, there's a lot more hope for them than even they realize. President Smith will help us understand that. Joseph Smith will help us understand that with work for the dead. But to think that this is it. I've often been fascinated by other churches' plans of salvation. They don't call them that. But kind of this belief in the afterlife and judgment and so on. And for the most part, it's you live your life, you die, and that judgment is passed immediately and you go to heaven or you go to hell. That's it. And the irony there, I've done this with classes sometimes where I'll draw out the, the normal rendition of the plan of salvation. I'm not much of an artist, but I can do circles and squiggly lines and arrows, right? And so you've got pre-mortality, pass through the veil, you come to earth, and then we die. And what happens? Oh, we go to the spirit world where it has paradise and prison. Then what? Then there's final judgment and resurrection, and we go to a kingdom of glory. Celestial, terrestrial, telestial. 
and the sparsely populated outer darkness. And we look at that for a moment, and then what's interesting is to ask them, what do other churches believe? And they look at that and go, oh, they don't believe any of that. I said, well, actually, let me just cover up the first part, since they don't believe in pre-mortality, and let me cover up the last part, since they don't believe in the degrees of glory. But what do you have left? Earth life, death, some kind of judgment to separate them into paradise and prison. Well, what does that contracted view of the plan of salvation kind of look like? Earth life, death and judgment, heaven and hell. Wow. They're kind of right. They're just missing the ends, start and finish. So they would think that that was it. Final judgment has been passed. When it, No, that's just preliminary. And you've kind of judged yourselves. Those who know the truth are in a state of rest and peace, free from troubles and cares and sorrows, because they know that the promise of resurrection and redemption is real. Weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth is because they think this is it. They think this is outer darkness. Oh, it's not. There is yet a kingdom of glory waiting for almost all of them. I think we get a sense of that in verse 14. Now, this is the state of the souls of the wicked, yea, in darkness, what they would consider outer darkness, but not the kind of capital O, capital D, registered trademark outer darkness that we associate with final judgment for sons of perdition. They are in darkness, in a state of awful, fearful looking for the fiery indignation of the wrath of God upon them. And they remain in this state, just like the righteous remain in their state of paradise, until the time of their resurrection. Now that's fascinating to me. An awful, fearful looking for the fiery indignation of the wrath of God. Remember what Alma said back in chapter 33, quoting Zenus and Zenic? That the only thing that makes God angry is us not understanding his mercies? Well, these are those who had no part nor portion in the Spirit of the Lord which would have reassured them throughout life that God's forgiveness and love and mercy and long-suffering are real. What would they have been left with? This fearful conception of an angry God. And if that's the God that you've been taught to fear, then what's the spirit we're going to look like to you? Imagine two youths, Corianton's one of them, sitting in chairs outside the bishop's office. They're both going in for interviews. One of them knows the bishop for what he's really like a kind and loving leader who empathizes, understands their struggles, what they deal with, just wants to help, wants to turn his priesthood keys in their behalf. His friend sitting next to him does not have that impression of the bishop. He thinks of the bishop as some kind of angry disciplinarian, the executioner in there, sharpening the blade of the guillotine. And there they are, both sitting, waiting for the executive secretary to usher them in. How does youth number one feel as he's sitting there? This is just that space of time to wait. But his is a mental state of peace and rest, happiness. I get to go talk to the bishop. He's my friend. He's here to help me. And how does the second youth feel? Dreading the impending doom he's anticipating. Awful, fearful, looking. I love that word. It's like they're looking for something. And they're looking for something that will never really come. We condemn ourselves. I think the worst thing about scary movies is the anticipation. You know there's going to be a jump scare sometime. You just want it to happen. But you're always on the lookout. And that feeling of fear is what is devastating. 
Well, that's what they're feeling in spirit prison. That's their state of mind. They don't know the truth, the truth that would have set them free, which is why when Christ dies and goes to the spirit world himself, he organizes the forces of the righteous to go and share that redeeming, comforting, reassuring message to everyone. That preliminary division was self-imposed, states of mind. There is yet a final judgment and degrees of glory that you've been preparing for and are yet preparing for. So there's those two states of mind. And at the end of verse 14, they remain in those states until the time of their resurrection. Now, 15, he starts grappling with what must have been in the vocabulary of people back then, some idea of a first resurrection. He's trying to make sense of what exactly does that mean? He says, there are some that have understood that this state of happiness and this state of misery of the soul before the resurrection was a first resurrection. Now, I'll admit, I guess you could call it that. It may be termed a resurrection the raising of the spirit or the soul, and their consignation to happiness or misery, according to the words which have been spoken. So I guess you could call that a first resurrection. I would prefer to call it a preliminary judgment, not the final judgment to an ultimate kingdom of glory, but a preliminary judgment into states of mind that are either happy or miserable. Now, if you want to call that a first resurrection, I guess that could apply. Then again, verse 16, here's the other option I've heard. Again, it hath been spoken that there is a first resurrection, a resurrection of all those who have been or who are or who shall be down to the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And those two resurrections, if you call them both first resurrections, they can't be the same thing. 17, he says, we do not suppose that this first resurrection, which is spoken of in this manner, can be the resurrection of the souls and their consignation to happiness or misery. Ye cannot suppose that this is what it meaneth. So let's see if we can make sense of this. It's like he's asking, so are we talking about the quality of one's life? That would be separation based on one's choices on earth, good or bad, happiness or misery. So is that what we mean by first resurrection? Separating out the resurrections first versus others in terms of the quality of life. Or does it refer to the chronology of one's life? Separation into various resurrections based on when we happen to live. B.C. people versus A.D. people, for example. Maybe that's why Corianton was wondering, like we saw at the end of chapter 39, why we need to know this beforehand and how's that compared to people who lived after Christ's life and so on. Now, here's the danger. If you associate the two in in your mind, if you mistake the chronological for the qualitative, I know this is a bit confusing, But if it's chronological, then first resurrection is people who lived before Jesus, and second resurrection is people who live after him. If it's qualitative, first resurrection is people go to a state of rest and peace and paradise, and the second resurrection is those that go to weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Remember, like John in the New Testament, we'll talk about a resurrection of the just and a resurrection of the unjust. Ooh, is that first and second? In fact, that's the verse that spurs the visions that Joseph and Sidney Rigdon received for section 76. He's inquiring diligently to understand these things as well. It can be confusing. What do you mean by first and second? Like round one BC versus round two AD, or round one righteous, peace, rest, and round two wicked, weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth. Because if they're the same thing, then let's hear it for the BC saints. Because if we're the first resurrection and they're the ones that get to go to this state of happiness, peace, and rest, then I'm in. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we live. And we live in peace. 
You see how that would be a cop-out, but a really comforting false doctrine? Flattering words, just what we want to hear? That's why he's clarifying in verse 17, no, 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 careful, son, don't go down that road. You can't suppose that the first resurrection, as in B.C. saints, is the same thing as that first resurrection of the souls to be happy. You cannot suppose this is what it meaneth. Verse 18, he clarifies, it simply means the reuniting of the soul with the body or those from the days of Adam down to the resurrection of Christ. So it's the chronological first that he's dealing with. And the chronological first is not the same as the qualitative first. There's not an easy out just because you preceded Jesus Christ. Why do you think we've been living the law of Moses for these centuries? To point our minds forward to Christ, to teach us that we need to offer a broken heart and a contrite spirit, that we need to sacrifice our sins, lay the animal within us on the altar. Remember what Amulek said in 34? You were there, son. Every wit of the law of Moses was pointing to that great and last sacrifice, infinite and eternal. It was teaching us of Jesus so that we could be part of the first qualitative resurrection. That's not guaranteed. Even if, as BC saints, we are guaranteed a first chronological resurrection. Now in 19, he admits another thing he doesn't quite know, whether the souls and the bodies of those of whom has been spoken shall all be reunited at once, the wicked as well as the righteous. I don't know, so I'm not going to say. Let it suffice that I say that all shall come forth, or in other words, their resurrection cometh to pass before the resurrection of those who die after the resurrection of Christ. Remember in the Gospels, when it speaks of Jesus Christ's resurrection and the graves of others opened as well, enough at least to bear witness that this was occurring. When Jesus comes among the Nephites, he makes a point of it. Let me see your scriptures, Nephi. Oh, it's not written down that others would resurrect with me. Didn't Samuel the Lamanite make that prophecy? I, I told him he should. Oh yeah, he did, he did. And did it happen? Yeah, it happened. Why didn't you write it down? This was something they needed to clarify. Now in 20, again, admitting where his knowledge falls short, he does offer his opinion says, I do not say that their resurrection cometh at the resurrection of Christ, but behold, I give it as my opinion that the souls and the bodies are reunited of the righteous at the resurrection of Christ and his ascension into heaven. And that seemed to be the case, as I mentioned in those other passages. Now, 21, whether it's at his resurrection or after, I do not say, but this much I say, that there is a space. Let's get back to the issue at hand. There's a space between death and the resurrection of the body and a state of the soul in happiness or in misery until the time which is appointed of God that the dead shall come forth and be reunited, both soul and body, and be brought to stand before God and be judged according to their works. Verse 21 is kind of the summary verse of this chapter. There is space, just like I taught back in chapter 12. And what are we going to do with our time? What are we going to fill the time and day of this life with? Because that's going to determine what that space of time is filled with in the next. And it's going to determine what our judgment is at the end of it all. That space of time will either be one of happiness or misery as we are preparing for final judgment. It's the two kids sitting outside the bishop's office. One at ease, knowing that all will be well because of repentance and redemption. And the other, awful, fearful, looking. I don't know the truth, so how could it possibly make me free? You remember how Enos pictured his waiting time? I soon go to the place of my rest, he said, which is with my Redeemer. I'm not there yet. I'm waiting for it, but I'm prepared for it. I know that in him I shall rest. I had previews of coming attractions, what that spirit world 
paradise will be. I rejoice in the day when my mortal shall put on immortality. Resurrection can be good news for me. It's not bad news because it forces me back into God's presence to be judged. I shall stand before him and I look forward to it because then shall I see his face with pleasure. He will say unto me, Come unto me, ye blessed. There is a place prepared for you in the mansions of my Father. That's the kind of waiting room experience we want to have in the spirit world. Now in verse 22, having been brought back to be judged according to our works, that's the end of 21, this bringeth about the restoration, which will be the topic of chapter 41, the restoration of those things of which have been spoken by the mouths of the prophets. Not restoration of the gospel, but 23, the restoration of the soul to the body. Resurrection itself is a form of restoration. We reap what we've sown. The soul to the body, the body to the soul. Every limb, every joint restored to its body. Every hair of the head restored to its proper and perfect frame. 24, this is the restoration of which has been spoken by the mouths of the prophets. 25, then shall the righteous shine forth in the kingdom of God. So, so far we've talked about them shining in paradise, but that's a preliminary shine. That's resting in peace and happiness. No trouble, no care, no sorrow. But it's not till resurrection and final judgment that the righteous shall shine forth in the kingdom of God. Meanwhile, what's the final destiny and final judgment of the wicked? 26, an awful death cometh upon the wicked. That's the second spiritual death. You've been brought into my presence to overcome the first spiritual death that was on Adam and Eve's account. But now you'll have to suffer an awful death of your own, a second spiritual death. For they die as to things pertaining to things of righteousness. They are unclean, and no unclean thing can inherit the kingdom of God. They are cast out and consigned to partake of the fruits of their labors or their works, which have been evil, and they drink the dregs of a bitter cup. In other words, both groups partake of the fruit of their labors. One group eating of the fruit of the tree of life, that you have been growing within you all along. That's Alma 32. And the other side, eating or drinking the dregs of a bitter cup. No wonder the righteous have been happily resting in the spirit world. They know what's for dinner. Come final judgment. The sweetest, most pure, delicious fruit imaginable. And no wonder the wicked have spent their waiting room, spirit world, prison time awfully, fearfully looking because they're going to reap what they've sown, and they've only sown wickedness. That's the message of chapter 41. The restoration of which has been spoken, which is a restoration of the law of the harvest. We reap what we sow. Call it karma. Call it the yo-yo principle. We send it out and it comes right back. We end up being the person that we have become. Seems pretty obvious, but that's what restoration is. And unfortunately, verse 1 some have rested the scriptures and have gone far astray because of this thing. And like I, we read already, your mind's been worried about this too, I can tell. So let me explain it to you. Honestly, chapter 41 is so straightforward and simple. It's almost a relief after the confusion of chapter 40 and before the complexity of chapter 42. If you wanted to, you could sum up the whole chapter in one verse, which is the last one, verse 15. That which ye do send out shall return unto you again. That's why I call it the yo-yo principle. And it'll be restored. And here's the takeaway he wants his son and others to receive. 
Therefore, the word restoration more fully condemneth the sinner. It justifieth him not at all. So that's going to help us understand what we're looking for as we read this chapter. How have people been resting the scriptures and going far astray because of this thing? Because if you understand the restoration of the righteous, that they're blessed, they eat the fruit of the tree of life eternally, and you only take that half, it's like almost divide the scriptures into all the verses about justice and all the verses about mercy. We'll see that in chapter 42, basically. And then get rid of the just ones and think, oh, well, he said that he'd be merciful. He said that he'd forgive. He said that he'd save us, that we'll spend eternity in happiness and joy with him. Well, awesome. Bring it on. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That was for the righteous. We got a different set of scriptures for people that are unrepentant. So if you think all of the scriptures passages about restoration, about eternal reward, specifically the good news half of those verses, if you think those apply to both the righteous and the wicked indiscriminately, yeah, I've got a different thing for you to understand. You see, no wonder they're resting the scriptures. No wonder they're going far astray. That's what Sherem and Nehor and Korahor and Amosai and all those others were after. You can live however you want, and it's going to come out fine in the end. That's why he's warning them at the end of 15. The word restoration does not justify people. You picture a professor at the beginning of a semester describing all the requirements of the class and the expectations and the curve and all those kinds of things and saying at the end of that explanation, I'm here for you. I have TAs and tutors. We have so many things that are here to help you succeed in this class. My goal for you, and right at this moment, the person that's been half asleep or texting friends or playing Candy Crush or whatever, suddenly perks up and is like, what's the professor saying? And right then the professor says, my goal is that all of you succeed and pass, get an A in this class. And all of you can. If I have my way, all of you will. That's my goal. And that student, sweet, he's going to pass us all. Dude, we're in. So glad we signed up for this class. I got to go on rateyourprofessor.com and give high marks on easiness of class. Whoa, careful. You have rested the scriptures. You've gone far astray because you thought that restoration, the promise of eternal life, would justify sinners when in reality it condemns them. I promised an incredible harvest to those who sow the seed and nourish the plant. But those who sow nothing, who cast out the seed because of their unbelief, or do not nourish the tree, I'm a 32 again, right? They'll have nothing to harvest come harvest time. He basically says that in every verse leading up to it. Verse 2, I say unto thee, my son, the plan of restoration is requisite with the justice of God, which will be the topic of chapter 42. See, in each chapter, it's like he's starting to lean and point towards the next one. For it is requisite that all things should be restored to their proper order. It's requisite and just according to the power and resurrection of Christ. The soul of man should be restored to its body and that every part of the body should be restored to itself. So there's the restoration that's inherent in resurrection. There's also a restoration that is inherent in judgment, and that's in verse 3. It is requisite with the justice of God that men should be judged according to their works. If their works were good in this life and the desires of their heart were good, that they should also at the last day be restored unto that which is good. It's what they've been working towards. It's what they've been believing in. It's what they've been reconciling their will to their whole life. Again, it's not a matter of earning salvation. 
but of learning it. With that reconciled will, we're ready to receive what God has always wanted to offer us all along. But again, you see the danger. I sometimes see this in my wonderful evangelical friends. Well, if God just is promising us free salvation, you see how the law of restoration can be rested to think that we're all justified no matter what we do? Just because we don't earn salvation doesn't mean we don't have to learn it. Just because it is by grace that we are saved doesn't mean there is nothing for us to do. And our doing is the reconciliation of our will so that we'll want to be in God's presence. Otherwise, we're stuck with some awful fearful looking as well. So three is the good news for the righteous. Four is the not so good news for the not so righteous. If their works were evil, they shall be restored unto them for evil. Either way, all things shall be restored to their proper order, everything to its natural frame. Mortality raised to immortality and corruption to incorruption. There's restoration over the abyss of physical death and raised to endless happiness to inherit the kingdom of God or to endless misery to inherit the kingdom of the devil. That's restoration over the abyss of spiritual death. One's on the one hand, the other's on the other. Verse 5, the one raised to happiness according to his desires of happiness or good according to his desires of good. That person reaped what they sowed. And the flip side, the other to evil according to his desires of evil. For as he has desired to do evil all the day long, even so he shall he have his reward of evil when the night cometh. Both parties get what they want, at least what their life suggested they wanted all along. We don't just wake up in the next life with completely different taste buds. That's what Amulek taught back in chapter 34. The same spirit which possesses us in this life possesses us in the life to come. And so much of this life, the reconciliation of our will is to retrain our taste buds so that God's fruit really is as sweet as advertised. Have you seen from your own experience that if we are overdosing on artificial sweeteners, the vain things of the world that we saw in Alma 39, then sometimes something as naturally sweet as a piece of ripened fruit doesn't seem that sweet after all. Well, it's not quite as strong as a starburst. I'll confess, I really do love starbursts. But if I've weaned myself off of them, as I should, then fruit is as delicious as any piece of candy might be. And it doesn't rot me in the way that the other does. Again, we don't wake up with different tastes. We've spent our life developing our trajectory and our momentum. The next life will be able to continue moving forward. That's what restoration is all about. Verse 6, if we've repented of our sins and desired righteousness, we'll be rewarded unto righteousness. Verse 7, those are the ones that are redeemed of the Lord. They are taken out, taken out of that prison. They knew they would be all along. That's why they could rest in peace and assurance. They're delivered from that endless night of darkness, and thus they stand or fall. Behold, they are their own judges, whether to do good or to do evil. That's why even when I called it a preliminary judgment, it's more of a self-imposed one. You know how in church there's no assigned seats, but we tend to sit in the same spots every week? We just kind of go where we're comfortable. Do I sit on the sides? Do I sit in the front? Do I sit way in the back? Schools tends to be the same way. And we, and we kind of gravitate into certain areas, to certain kinds of people. It'll be interesting in the spirit world. Are people just gravitating until the Lord comes and gathers all those who've been expecting him? And he says, now go out and find anyone who has that kind of awful, fearful look in their eyes and give them hope. Teach them the fullness of the gospel. Faith 
repentance, vicarious baptism, and confirmation for the gift of the Holy Ghost. They need the same glad tidings that you got. So give it to them. Up till then, we're just standing or falling as our own judges. Now, verse 8, the decrees of God are unalterable. Therefore, the way is prepared that whosoever will may walk therein and be saved. You see, if we're kind of cherry-picking phrases that we want to hear, we could doctor up that verse and say, the way is prepared that whosoever will may be saved. You want it, it's yours. Isn't that what restoration promises? God is good. He's loving. He wants us home. We're saved by grace. Salvation is free. I'm not just quoting evangelical doctrine. I'm quoting the Book of Mormon with that. That's Second Nephi 2. Salvation is free. It's by grace that you're saved, Second Nephi 25. But separating God's goals from God's decrees, the unalterable ones, separating grace from reconciliation, separating faith from works, that's resting scripture. And it's so easy to do because it sounds so good in the ear. But boy, that's risky business. At least that's the word he suggests in verse 9. Behold, my son, do not risk one more offense against your God upon these points of doctrine, which ye have hitherto risked to commit sin. Overemphasizing God's mercy at the expense of his justice is a risky thing. The opposite is risky too, don't get me wrong. Proving the contraries here is essential. You have to have both. Faith without works is dead, true, but works without faith is deader. Evangelicals are right in warning Latter-day Saints that it is risky to underestimate the power of grace. But Latter-day Saints are also wise in warning others that it is risky to presume upon that grace, as Paul says, and just assume that we'll reap eternal rewards no matter what we've sown or haven't sown in this life. I can't reiterate it enough. We're not earning heaven by saying this, but we are learning it we are reconciling our wills to God. We're learning to plant the right things. Trees of life springing up within us. You see, verse 10 really clarifies the thought. Do not suppose. This is what this rested scripture would lead them to suppose. Don't suppose because it hath been spoken concerning restoration that ye shall be restored from sin to happiness. And then this phrase we quote all the time. Now we see it in context. Behold, I say unto you, wickedness never was happiness. You can't plant darkness your whole life and then wake up some morning ready to harvest light. It doesn't work that way. You can't sow sin and reap happiness. It never works. You really will grow what you planted. And that's the fruit you'll be eating for the rest of eternity. So restoration means bad restored to bad and good restored to good. It doesn't mean bad restored to good. That's not restoration. It doesn't work that way. Verse 11, now my son, all men that are in a state of nature, or I would say in a carnal state, are in the gall of bitterness. That doesn't sound like sweet fruit, does it? In the bonds of iniquity. It's not knowing the truth and the truth setting you free. They are without God in the world. And they've been content to live that way. So they'll live without God in the next. They have gone contrary to the nature of God. Therefore, they are in a state contrary to the nature of happiness. See how that associates God with happiness and bitterness with his absence? The nature of things. This is the same man that's been talking about nature growing seeds, right? The nature of things is that seeds grow up after their own likeness. He said that back in 32 as well, right? So if we spent our lives trying to become like God, then of course in the next life we will 
feel comfortable being with him. Thinking the opposite true is contrary to that nature. Verse 12, do you think the meaning of the word restoration is to take a thing of a natural state and place it in an unnatural state or to place it in a state opposite to its nature? You don't plant apples and then harvest oranges. It doesn't work that way. You don't plant darkness and harvest light. Verse 13, this is not the case. The meaning of the word restoration is to bring back again evil for evil, carnal for carnal, devilish for devilish. That's the bad news. Here's the good. Good for that which is good, righteous for that which is righteous, just for that which is just, merciful for that which is merciful. Which are you planting, son? 14, see that you are merciful unto your brethren. Deal justly, judge righteously, do good continually. And if you do all these things, then shall ye receive your reward. Yea, ye shall have mercy restored unto you again. You've sent it out to others. It can now come back for you. Ye shall have justice restored unto you again. And that's actually good news. I'll talk about that in the next chapter. Ye shall have a righteous judgment restored unto you again. You shall have good rewarded unto you again. That's the sum of this chapter. That which you send out shall return unto you again. That's what restoration means. You see how that does not justify sinners? It condemns them. At least it condemns those that do not repent. Justice demands that. So let's talk about justice, son. And that's chapter 42.